Louisiana is experiencing the worst insurance crisis in its history. That's what our Louisiana Insurance Commissioner said, Tim Temple, and he joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, Noel. So, Tim, when I heard that statement uh, made by you, it kind of, uh, and I know it's bad, um, but I guess coming from you, it, it makes it sound so much worse. Um, what went into your thought process that you kind of started out uh, testifying uh, right off the bat with, with that statement? Well, you know, no, it, it's based on uh, j- just reality. You know, the, it, if you look at the history of Louisiana, it, let's just say the last 30 years, um, you know, or, or even go back to, to, you know, just prior to Hurricane Katrina. You know, with Katrina and Rita, Louisiana certainly experienced a property crisis at that time. And, you know, everybody that was, in, especially in South Louisiana, uh, felt the, certainly felt the impacts of that. Um, but that moderated over, you know, over, over a period of years. You know, right now, though, Newell, people in Louisiana are experiencing another property crisis as a result of Laura Delta Zeta and Ida. But that's not just being felt in South Louisiana. That has impacted the entire state, primarily because you had 12 companies go insolvent. But in addition to that, you had dozens leave the state, stop riding property. But on top of that, we've got a private passenger auto crisis, which we as individuals have been dealing with for for the last many years. So you've got a property crisis, you've got an auto crisis, and then you throw on top of that a commercial property. So all the buildings that are owned or or that are in commerce, there's a property, a commercial property crisis. And then on top of that, there's a commercial auto crisis, which again, we've been dealing with is individual businesses for several years. And then there's the flood, federal flood prop, you know, issues with affordability. So the reason I say it's the worst is because no matter where you live in this state, you're being impacted not just by one, but two or more unaffordable insurance, um, you know, premiums that, that we're facing. And so, I mean, look, if somebody wants to debate and say, no, it's been worse at some other time, I'm happy to hear where they, when they think that was. But uh, I, I, think, I think this is as bad as it's ever been. No, I, I, I would agree with you for sure, uh, no doubt about it. Um, so you've had the opportunity to visit with the reinsurers. You've been talking to insurance companies. I know you've spent a lot of time talking to legislators. Uh, y'all are developing a legislative package for the regular session. Uh, what would we expect to see? You know, I would say overall, you know, what what the you know the legislators and and and, and any you know citizen that that wants to see good government can expect is that we're bringing insurance reform legislation that is designed to 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 make bring Louisiana in line with other states where we're an outlier, uh, but also to reform existing laws and regulations so that the industry has more stability and more predictability as far as doing business in the state. And and the intent, the overall intent of that, Newell, is to, by making us a more attractive state to operate in, companies come in and those companies compete for your business. That That is what we all as individuals should want is the ultimate goal is having not one or two companies that want to write your home or your auto or your business, 
but 10 or 20 companies. That's, that's, that is the best consumer protection that we as individuals and businesses could, could hope to have is competition. And right now, we don't have that. So that, that's, that's the focus of the legislative uh, – I, I use the word package – but legislation that the department is going to be focused on um, and that other groups and associations are, are, are focused on. So obviously you have a high confidence level that the insurance marketplace principles can prevail and we will see more competition and more companies willing to come back here. It It is. It, it is. You know, insurance is still a, uh, you know, a, a capitalist driven business industry. It's a free market. Uh, and, and look, we're, when we're the most expensive state in America for auto insurance and we're the most expensive state for homeowners insurance, that means somewhere in this country there's somebody that's, that's the least expensive. Um, and, right. and that's what we want to go. And, and I don't think we'll ever be the least, and I don't want to mislead anybody by, by, you know, to suggest that because we do have you – know, we are situated on the Gulf of Mexico. So when it comes to property insurance, not auto, but when it comes to property insurance, we do have some exposures that are – um, you know, a little bit more unique versus the rest of the, the country. But, you know, we do share the Gulf of Mexico with five other states. And uh, those states, you know, we're looking at what they've done in the past. And, you know, they they are constantly evolving and reforming their their laws and their regulations to, to make sure that they're keeping up with, with current trends. And that's, that's, that's what we're asking to, for Louisiana, you know, citizens and Louisiana legislators to support is identifying where Louisiana is an outlier, what makes us more difficult to do business in, what makes us more difficult to operate in, and, and, and modify that so that we're like other states, so that those insurance companies want to come to Louisiana and do business. There are those that argue that uh, some of that, but do, do we really have any other options? Any other option? I mean, I don't think. I other, think other, our, other than what you've articulated. I mean, folks are saying, well, you know, we, we can do this. But if you're different, I mean, it, it seems to me the only way that you get to improve is to is to become more like and mimic other states. Right. Well, we do. And look, I don't think we have any other options. And, and I'll tell you, you know, I. I did I did a program yesterday and, 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 and you know, I, I'm, you know, the opponents to this to reform, you know, all they say is when we talk about, uh, you know, modifying regulations or we talk about modifying legislation, laws, all they say is no. We like the status quo. They don't come with solutions. And, 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 and if, if anybody watched the House Insurance Committee uh, hearing on Tuesday, everybody at that table agreed that we're in an insurance crisis, that we're in an affordability crisis and that we're in an availability crisis. But, you know, those that were opposing anything of change just said, you know, let's just keep things the way they are. That, that, that won't work. We cannot afford where we are. And, and, you know, we need to try something different. Yeah, and, and maybe it me- needs to be more on a micro level than it is on a macro level about specific instances and, you know, things that you hear about with slowness of the processing of a claim or, you know, uh, the problem with managing uh, the throughput of a claim, managing claim adjusters and things of that nature. But we got to get them back first, right? And and that's well, that's the we, thing. 
Yeah, look, we've got to get them back, but but it's it, that isn't uh, it's not a chicken or the egg because listen, I can tell you at the same time, you know, I am having conversations with insurance carriers about how do we make the claimants' experience better. You know, because you're right. Look, at the end of the day, insurance companies are in the business of paying claims. That you know, the, the faster they pay a claim, the, then the faster they they can close that and move on. And, and they want they're in the business to make you whole. And anytime that something is inserted, gets in between that process of you, a claimant, getting money from you, the in, from, from, from the insurance company, that adds cost. And so, you know, I'm talking to insurance companies. How can you respond quicker, more efficiently? How can you get money in the hands of the claimant when they need it the most? We're having those conversations. And there's, you know, regulation-wise, you know, I want to – I'd not say want to. I am looking at – is what we can do to register and license claims adjusters that have more experience. You know, a lot of times after, you know, catastrophic event, you know, you get these, you, you know, you issue these temporary license to adjusters coming in that, that are very new to the, to the industry. You know, I certainly understand you have to have some, there's, there's a capacity issue there, but we're looking to see how can we make that model better so that the people that are showing up at a claimant's door have the authority, have the ability, have the resources to start that claims process so that, you know, with the intent of getting money in pockets, we're, we're looking at that. We're looking at legislate, you know, laws on the books. How do we make it so that the consumer has less, you know, look, I'll tell you, I mean, you, you know this, I know this, you look at your insurance contract and, you know, your policy, and, and it is a lot of legalese. But, but that doesn't mean you hire an attorney when you have a claim. We got to make sure that we try and, and and simplify the claims process for the claimant so that they can get back on their feet sooner. Right. Um, when we rely on the insurance market principles, capital, you know, the capital, um, uh, the market capital to come back in and and, and like um, very. In, uh, from a time period standpoint, are we able to determine? Are we able to evaluate how long? Or, or because there's so many other influences, so many other conditions that impact this. Um, any feel for how long before we start seeing folks come back in? Yeah, there is. And look, you know, the the insurance industry is slow to change. You know, and it does take it does take longer than any of us as consumers ever want it to happen. Um, and that's why I'm looking internally from a regulatory standpoint, what can we do to help? And, and the phrase I use is speed to market. What can we do to help insurance companies adjust more quickly to current market conditions, speed to market, the, the, the more efficient an insurance company can be then the less cost they have. And, and look, Insurance companies like to make money, and if they see an insurance company making money somewhere, the other insurance companies are going to want to follow that. And what does that create? That creates that competition because they don't, you know, nobody wants one person to make all the money. So they, that that is a positive thing for the consumers. That that the, that's what creates that competition. So you want insurance companies to be efficient, but but I think Newell, to to try and answer, I think you, more the specific here question, the, the changes that we're looking at on the property side are designed to we're focused on things that will move the needle the the furthest the fastest um 
in, in, in the reinsurance world, and, and again, I hate to get complex, uh, you know, uh, for, for your listeners, but in the reinsurance world, you know, the primary dates for reinsurance renewals are January 1st and June and July 1st. Um, so if we can affect some positive change in Louisiana, modify some of the rules and the regulations that the insurance companies would see as favorable for them to want to conduct business in the state of Louisiana, I think that's the first that's the first hurdle to fall. If we can do that the earlier in the year, then that's the more time that those reinsurance markets have to evaluate what we've done and start to factor those changes into their pricing. Does that does that mean it's going to have, you know, you see improvement in June and July renewals? Possibly, uh, but certainly by the end of the year. So the legislative package that you will be bringing forward, uh, what do you anticipate as to the number of bills that will be involved in making up this package? And will it be for just one uh, for homeowners or or you have are you thinking about auto uh, and um, and the other types of insurance as well? It's both. We'll have I mean, we're focused in at the department. We're focused primarily on the homeowners uh, perspective. making that you know because that's the claim that's the phone call that most people i can tell you it's the it's the phone call that we get the most at the department of insurance it's the phone call that that as i talk to legislators that they get the most is about their homeowners specifically but but a quick second behind that is the auto and and i do know that industry is bringing you know some legislation uh to to try and address the, the auto crisis as well so it's it's not one or the other um, you know, I, I believe that we've got to tackle this crisis, you know, from every side. And uh, as far as number of bills, no, we're looking at, uh, I guess, maybe uh, I, I probably I'd say at least half a dozen, um, if not more uh, department bills. And we've got a few technical bills just cleaning up some stuff. But as right. far as what I would call real drivers, there's three to four. Uh, items mm-hmm. that we're going to be really focused on uh, trying to, like I said, trying to get um, through the system, through the process as quickly as possible so that we can give, you know, the global markets and the and the insurance markets as much time as possible to evaluate those and make sure that it's, I mean, and I say evaluate, it, it, we've had, we've been talking with them. We know the, this is what needs to be done, but we want to make sure that we get it uh, affected as soon as possible. Absolutely. Final thoughts? Well, I, I would just say, you know, we, we had that hearing the other day and and after that, I was encouraged by the conversations I've had with with legislators, um, with industry folks. You know, there, there are people there representing. You know, they 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 claim to represent the consumers. Um, you know, th- th- that's a different story. But um, I can tell you this: we're trying to dialogue with everybody. It, it, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna turn down a phone call from a. Uh, anybody that says they want to be part of the solution and that and, and they have a potential solution. So I'm, I'm encouraged that we're going to get a lot of participation. This is certainly on everybody's radar uh, from the governor on down to all the state leadership. So it's going to be a, a busy and a, a quick first month here as we start March 11th. Absolutely, for sure. And obviously, it's a top of mind issue for everyone. And we wish you the best of luck in in moving this initiative forward. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Talk to you again soon, Neil. 
All righty. That's Tim Temple, Louisiana Insurance Commissioner. We'll be right back after the break. We'll visit with Harry Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney, talking about the Georgia election case against Donald Trump and uh, what's going on with the uh, Fannie Willis um, debacle, I would call it, in, in court. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. We're joined by Harry Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney. Uh, Harry, welcome to the show. Hey, Newell. It's always good to talk to you and your listeners. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. Harry, uh, I guess you have been able to watch or listen to some of the testimony in uh, D.A. Willis's case where they're talking about whether or not the special prosecutor that was appointed by her, Nathan Wade, and herself were involved in a romantic relationship. Uh, the divorce lawyer for Mr. Wade uh, testified the other day. Um, he was stopped in his uh, previous attempt to testify, saying that there was attorney-client privilege. A judge ruled that there was an avenue that he could talk about. Um, what were your thoughts about that whole process? Well, Newell, I, I, I watched uh, Mr. Bradley testify on Tuesday, which was the most recent testimony during the evidentiary hearing in this process. Um, and I, I'm aware that his prior testimony was halted when he invoked the privilege, which was basically uh, short-circuited by the, the district judge. But Mr. Bradley uh, was somewhat of an odd witness in the sense that he had uh, apparently been texting Mr. Romans, that is one of the defendant's lawyers, uh, for months with information about the romantic relationship between the district attorney and Nathan Wade that occurred uh, before he was before Mr. Wade was appointed as special counsel. Uh, but on the witness stand, uh, he did a number of uh, moments of backtracking, or as we're fond of saying here, crawfishing. He had uh, convenient amnesia. We said he was only speculating at the time, and he could not remember a, a number of facts that frustrated uh, the defendant's lawyers, Mr. Roman's attorney. As I watched this whole thing unfold, um, it became evident to me um, that that truth was not going to be a consequence in this, in this dialogue that went on. I mean, it was... It was all shaded answers, you know, misdirection, and nobody wanted to. You could tell that no one wanted to be there, right? I mean, it was like this was one of the craziest testimonies that I've, I've seen in a long time. Uh, absolutely. And really, it, it culminated, as I mentioned a moment ago, with Mr. Bradley's testimony on Tuesday where uh, he was in a position to – offer facts, but as the former uh, law partner of Nathan Wade, as his former divorce attorney, and yet he could not remember anything when he took the witness stand, which was peculiar at, at best, as you mentioned, Norman. I mean, uh, you, excuse me. Yeah. So, Harry, uh, let, let's look at it from the from the ethics perspective and, and what are the judge's options. So, Let's assume for a moment that um, Miss Willis and Mr. Wade had a romantic relationship before he was ever appointed as a special prosecutor. We know what happened during dependency of his 
appointment of special prosecution, that they continued on with a romantic relationship. They took trips. Maybe one, you know, paid, the other paid or whatever. Um, why is that uh, relationship uh, uh, date of when it started uh, and proving that before the appointment so important? Well, of course, Newell, that was one of the, the very first questions the district judge asked is, we're here to find out, did the relationship begin before um, Nathan Wade was appointed a special counsel uh, in this RICO uh, lawsuit, or did it occur afterwards, which may have ameliorated any ethics conflict, putting aside whether there were it, trips or other expenses that he paid for, but which the district attorney, um, of course, disavowed and said we shared all expenses. So I think that's going to be, frankly, the hard question for Judge McAfee, who's presiding over this case, to decide. Um, And a lot of it's going to be determined by credibility choices by uh, Judge McAfee. So when evaluating the text messages that were sent, um, he, you know, crawfished back and said that it was conjecture. Um, He was never really able to answer the question, why would you engaging in conjecture when you're voluntarily providing information at that point in time that you knew was going to be harmful to your client, right, and to your alleged friend? Why do that? If the judge takes attack of throwing out his testimony and believing, you know, what were what was in the text, what ha- I mean, where, where uh, from a, a from a judge's perspective, what are the options? Well, of course, the options would be one to disqualify the, the district attorney uh, to disqualify or to disqualify Wade. Uh, as a special prosecutor or disqualify them both. Uh, Then the ultimate option would be to dismiss the indictment, which I think is highly unlikely. It's just a personal opinion. Um, And we're all speculating here a bit as to what Judge McAfee will do. There is, as you know, uh, Newell, a a hearing tomorrow for, uh, for oral argument by both sides. And then Judge McAfee will take the matter under advisement and make a decision. We don't know when, but uh, presumably in short order. Because as it stands right now, there are two witnesses that have actually testified that this relationship started before the appointment of Mr. Wade as a special prosecutor. But I guess from the judge's perspective, would you agree that the least intrusive decision that he could make is probably just to remove Nathan Wade as a special prosecutor and let the D.A. Willis appoint a new one? Uh, I think that would be uh, the least intrusive uh, from the overall uh, perspective of uh, this proceeding. Uh, Certainly, if he removed um, the district attorney, that would be uh, a major win for uh, not only the defendants, but particularly for former President Trump. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact is, Newell, as you know, and your, many of your listeners know, that if there's a disqualification order, 
uh, whether it's for Nathan Wade, but particularly for Nathan Wade, I should say, rather than the district attorney, there's the potential and the likelihood that be a new prosecutor. That new prosecutor or a new special counsel could either accept the charges that are in place, modify them, expand them, or reduce them. Uh, and so that is one possibility. But the other benefit to former President Trump and the defendants, but particularly for former President Trump, is there would be a delay of this trial. Uh, and frankly, um, former President Trump has been very successful in getting delays in almost every judicial proceeding he's had. We've just received notice, of course, yesterday that the U.S. Supreme Court's going to hear the immunity issue. That's going to delay the trial regarding the January 6th uh, events. So uh, that's what uh, former President Trump and his campaign want to do is delay proceedings, certainly until after the election. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And and, uh, do we anticipate a ruling by the judge tomorrow, you think? Yeah, it's hard to say. I know that there's oral argument. I, I think it would be unusual to hear the judge rule from the bench. Uh, which right. he would have to do after hearing uh, oral argument, Newell. Uh, but I don't think he's going to be sitting on this for weeks at a time, particularly given uh, the public's interest, the defendants and the and the prosecutors' interest, uh, the fact that this has an effect on presidential race, and it's it's a much broader uh, has much broader ramifications than just this one case. Yeah, no doubt for sure. Uh, Thank you so much, Harry Rosenberg, for joining us, former U.S. attorney. Always appreciate your time and your insight. Have a great week. Newell, thanks again. Talk to you soon. Take care. All righty, folks, that's Harry Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney. We'll be right back after the break, and we'll check in with Darlene Casanza, president and CEO of Crime Stoppers. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. Crime Stoppers of Greater New Orleans will host its 39th annual awards luncheon Friday, March 1st. That's tomorrow, uh, 2024, at New Orleans Sheraton Hotel. Starts at 11 a.m. to uh, 11.30 a.m. The luncheon program begins at 11.45. The keynote speaker will be Superintendent Robert P. Hodges from Louisiana State Police. And this is the Heroes Reception for Officers and Deputies of the Year. And here to talk uh, with us about is Darlene Casanza, President and CEO of Crime Stoppers. Darlene, welcome to the show. Thank you, Newell. And and I look back at how many times we were together at this um, annual awards lunch and celebrating law enforcement. So um, thank you for letting the public know about this. Absolutely. Used to enjoy them every year. Unfortunately, when I took this job, I can't get off. (laughs) It's in the middle of work. (laughs) We've got to work on that. (laughs) So you guys are doing something a little different this year that I really like. And uh, it looks as though from the numbers that I was looking at, the participation has been huge. Tell us about it. We did. So this, you know, our, our luncheon's always been to celebrate law enforcement and, and other community advocates who are working for public safety. So because we are regional and we operate, um, our partnership expands all the way to St. James Parish. So it's multiple agencies. 
this year we got creative. We said, well, why don't we let each agency nominate an officer of the year or a deputy of the year? And really it was meant to be someone, you know, for their community service and other things that they do in the community, not just oh, I've been an officer for 30 years or whatever. Um, and all of those individuals, which we had 10 amazing, amazing candidates, um, were then offered the opportunity to participate on a um, social media voting campaign for the overall officer of the year. And it was it has been amazing for us because within the first 48 hours, we had 15,000 votes cast for the office, the different officers or, or deputies. And we closed that out yesterday. I think we're just under 20,000 votes. We had like 27,000, 28,000 views. We had 6,000 people who um, clicked on to win tickets to the event. But overall, what this tells me, um, Noel, is that people, they were 100% positive um, comments about individuals and thanking them for their service and thanking them for the commitment, what they do. So it was meant to be a, um, you know, a, a, a cheerleading effort for the community to thank law enforcement, and I think we succeeded. No, absolutely. Um, you got almost as many votes cast in your that election as the mayor's office in the city of New Orleans. So, I mean. Well, I will tell you, I was shocked when I got that Saturday morning phone call, again, 48 hours into the campaign. I'm like, oh, my God, we're already at 15,000. We had an increase to the next level voting um, platform. So, yes, I'm, I'm thrilled. But, again, it's because of these people who we, you know, they, they need to know that everybody out there paid attention and cared and commented about, you know, the amazing thing that they've done. And some of these officers, have, you know, they've saved lives. We have one individual who saved two lives in just one month. You know, it, it's truly amazing. And I hope people will go to our website and just read the, the bios and narratives on the officers. Absolutely. The Crime Stoppers Deputy Officers of the award, Year Award per Agency. It's presented by the Oscar J. Thomas Charitable Trust. I'm going to go ahead and read them. In Gretna, mm -hmm. Officer Jacob Small, JPSO, Detective Gregory Donald, Kenner, Police Officer Billy Hingle, NOPD, Detective Lamar Reno-Lewis, Plaquemines Parish, Lieutenant Jason Kornovich, St. Bernard, Sergeant Jeffrey Vega, St. Charles Parish, Deputy Michael Kindler, St. John the Baptist Parish, uh, Detective Sergeant Devin Meminger, St. Tammany Parish, Sergeant Grant Candies, and Slidell, Officer Anthony Karselich. Are those that um, have um, were put up as the deputies of the year, and then you uh, hand out a bunch of awards as well, right? We sure do, and uh, we have a our, our community involvement advocates award is going to the United Way, particularly Michael Williamson and um, Charmaine Cassiope, who they do amazing work, and particularly in the education arena, and they have really assisted us with our safe schools um, anonymous reporting platform. So we wanted to thank them and, and applaud their work. And we do have a Sheriff Harry Lee Lifetime um, Award in Criminal Justice, but it's a surprise. I can't say the winner. Right. But I'm thrilled that um, our parish president, Cynthia Lee Shang, will be presenting that tomorrow. And then another thing that we're doing that was pretty cool is um, we usually try to highlight certain cases or certain cold cases. And last year we did some amazing cases that JPSO had worked and actually um, has now, have now solved. So this year we took a look at NOPD homicides. And just looking at the number of cases that they've done and some of the key players, some of the, um, you know, um, I guess top performers in homicide. And just so people out there are listening, when you talk about NOPD alone, I mean, you know, the national average is four to six cases a year. But they're like averaging 12 to 13 cases a year. 
And when you look at cold cases, and you know, I don't know how hard the JPSO guys work because they're in the building. So I see how hard they go back years to try to find the, you know, the, the people who can help solve these cases. Well, the gentleman, one of the gentlemen that, um, that we, we're promoting tomorrow is um, Sergeant Rod Barrere. And um, he is the commander of cold case, or the, the sergeant of a cold case. And over a, a two-year period, they increased their solve rate by like a thousand percent. So it's just, you know, I'm thrilled that we're going to be able to announce several of those officers from like the first-time um, people in homicide, you know, to those who have been there at least five years, to people like Rob and Ryan Oakland who have been there more than 12 years, and just the amazing work that they've done. So. It makes your heart feel good because you know that these people are doing it for the right reasons. You know, victims, you know, have great responses when they work with the, with the individual officers. And, you know, it, it's making a difference. So that's Darlene, what the awards folks, tomorrow. If, mm-hmm. if folks want to join you all tomorrow, are there tickets still available? Tickets are available today. Um, if they can go to our website, crimestoppersgno.org, or call us. The number at this office is 837-8477. Uh, we probably will sell out by the end of the day. But, um, again, we, we're thrilled for the corporate partners will be there. We have about 550 people attending, um, probably about 90% of that on law enforcement because people sponsor law enforcement to come to this. So it's really a great place to network. And I want to close with saying we're even offering a special award to the newest ambassador for NOPD, and that is Patch, the miniature horse. Um, oh, I fell yeah. in love with Patch when I met Patch. <laughs> so he'll be at the luncheon. We'll be taking the pictures, and he's getting a special award from Crime Stoppers. Oh, there you go. So Patch will be there. Look out. <laughs> Patch will be there. If you get there quickly during that reception, you'll take a picture with Patch. <laughs> now, obviously, a lot of this is uh, raising funds in order to, um, you know, conduct y'all's program and getting information and helping law enforcement solve crimes, as well as a lot of the other uh, endeavors that, that y'all are involved in, correct? That is correct. I mean, certainly the funds um, help us in supporting not only the tip line, which most people think about as, oh, y'all, that tip line, but it's all that other educational program we do, all the crime prevention programming. If there's a special reward that we need to increase, like we did an increased reward for the escapee in Jefferson Parish, you know, those fun- this types of funds that are coming from these programs help us do that. And then we certainly can't forget the Safe Schools Anonymous Reporting app, which is statewide. It's in 600 schools. You know, these funds help us to continue educating our, our youth and help protecting our youth through this anonymous process. It's all to, uh, for a great cause for sure, and you know how I feel about your organization. Y'all have helped the JPSO out in, in a huge way for so many years, and we truly appreciate it. And I know a number of the other, all of the policing agencies in the metro area feel the same way. Uh, give us that website again. The website is www.crimestoppersgno.org, crimestoppersgno.org, and the phone number here is 837-8477 for those tickets, but definitely call soon. (laughs) Congratulations to you. Congratulations to all the award uh, recipients, and uh, have a great function tomorrow during the day. Thank you very much, and I'll take a picture with Patch for you. There you go. Darlene Casanza, President and CEO of Crime Stoppers. Have a great weekend. We will be right back. We'll check in with Ian Hoke, who is in for Scoot. Stay with us, folks. Welcome back, folks. Ian Hoke is in for Scoot, and he joins us. What do we have coming up, Ian? Yeah, we got a nice, relaxed amount of time to do this today, Sheriff. Thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you heard on Wednesday. I got like four words out, and then I was so gassed because I sprinted (laughs) over here from my office, man. I started the show like, thanks for listening to 
The Scoot Show. I'm your guest host. So this is much easier. All right. Today on the show, uh, magic mushrooms may be a leap forward in treating PTSD for our nation's service members. The veterans, the Department of Veterans Affairs is now actually funding studies on this. These new therapies for treating mental health conditions in veterans, including the use of psilocybin, which is, you know, the, the sort of medical scientific term for what we understand to be magic mushrooms. We're going to get the details from a fellow named Matthew Johnson. He's a senior researcher at the Shepherd Pratt Center of Excellence for Psilocybin Research and Treatment. In the two o'clock hour, we're going to talk about the uh, ruling from the uh, federal judge yesterday in regard to our short term rental rules. Big victory for the New Orleans City Council. Do they have a right to shut down your Airbnb? Do they have a right to throttle the amount of Airbnbs and VRBOs and homeaways in your neighborhood? Well, the federal judge certainly thinks so. He handed this victory to counsel. We'll talk to Andronika Morris from the Greater New Orleans Housing Alliance today. We'll let her take kind of a victory lap and tell us what this means for our local neighborhoods in the 3 o'clock hour. Can United States presidents literally do anything they want? While they are president, even commit serious crimes like assault and murder to avoid prosecution. That seems like that's what Donald Trump's lawyers are going to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court in April. We're going to have CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum on the show at 320. He's going to be back here. Always an interesting conversation with Thane. I always learn a lot from him. He'll be at 320 to explain what Trump's lawyers must be thinking that and more uh, in the next three hours right here. Newell, thanks so much. All righty. You didn't happen to go to the Stevie Nicks concert last night, did you? No, I didn't. But I was riding on my scooter in the CBD, and there was a woman in a convertible who was blasting Stevie Nicks, and I was on my scooter, so I could talk to her. I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, my daughter's at the concert, but I couldn't go. So I'm just driving around in my convertible listening to Stevie Nicks. Great Great that was concert. a good compromise. She did a, she oh, did a hell of a job. It was I'm sure. Right, a great show. I'm glad you got All to right, go. All right, folks, uh, Ian's up next. Hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll see you again tomorrow.